0: It's time for Brainerd Outdoors on B93.3. Brought to you by The Power Lodge, SCR Northern, Thielen Meats, Tracker Boating Center, Weimar Outdoors Archery Pro Shop, SW Bait & Tackle, Oars and My Marine in Crosby, Northern Sales and Manufacturing, Your Ice Castle Dealer in Pine River, Ice Sports Custom Fish Houses, Burmal Shoe Store in Randall, and by Radco, Your Truck Accessory Pros. Now, here's your host for Brainerd Outdoors. Brian Moon
1: and welcome into this week's show we have got a lot to cover with the weather being as nice as it is a lot of people are going to be out and about doing uh, some pan fishing so we'll talk some pan fish tactics throughout the show we'll also revisit an incredible wolf story that we had earlier this year plus what does it take to get into the forestry division of the Minnesota DNR we'll talk to an intern all that and more on this week's edition of Brainerd Outdoors and we'll kick off the show with our local report brought to you by Oars and Mine and Crosby. Oars and Mine can set you up with a full line of live bait and tackle, propane fill, the perfect ice house, or even make informed suggestions on where to drill your holes. Don't hit the Cuyuna Country Ice until you hit Oars and Mine on Highway 6 in Crosby. And we kick the show off. We bring in Nate Blazing with SW Guide Service and... Uh, I tell you what, Nate, going into this weekend, with the weather looking the way it is, uh, if people like to get out and chase crappies, bluegills, perch, now's the time.
2: Absolutely. Uh, Like we were saying before, the sun's going to be out, the temperatures are going to be nice, people are going to be smiling, get out and enjoy some fresh air, and the uh, panfish bite in particular really is starting to take off now. So I think uh, a lot of people are going to get out and enjoy the, the lakes and and do a lot of catching, so it's a perfect timing for that.
1: I first off, I guess let's talk about the landings and the ice conditions and all that. I would imagine with a lot of the the runoff and everything with the melting we've had, things are going to be a little sloppy out there.
2: Yep, uh, the landings are sta- starting to deteriorate a little bit. Some are better than others, again depending on the direction for the sun. But I know here, oh week and a half, two weeks ago, the ones on Gull were starting to get beat up pretty bad. Uh, A couple of the concrete um, blocks at the public access had actually lifted up by 371, and you bottomed out pretty hard getting across that. The one down by Ernie's was getting to be a little rough. So, yeah, you just got to kind of pick and choose and be careful and take your time getting out on some of those. But overall, the ice conditions are still pretty darn good. Uh, You can get around whether it's a vehicle or ATV. Um, Easy going now because there's not much snow left on top of the, the
1: ice that's a nice thing i mean we to be honest with you a lot of people that i talk to actually put away their ice fishing gear right around the ice fishing extravaganza because everything was such a mess and now it's like everybody's scrambling to get their stuff ready again because now is it it's a great time to get out there
2: yep and i kind of do the same thing with my walleye stuff i kind of put that to the back or to the side here and Now I grabbed the other bag with my panfish stuff and got out and got to do some of that this past weekend, took my daughter out, and we're going to go out again tonight. and It's just really fun. The fish are getting active, Uh, enjoyable to be outside to punch a bunch of holes and kind of move around. And the cool thing, too, especially with the panfish, everything's related to the vegetation right now. So if you find, again, some green weeds, cabbage in particular, you're getting crappies, sunfish, bass. We even got some bullheads. You get a pike in there
1: now and then. So it's a
2: lot of action, mixed bag. You never know what you're going to get, and they're pretty darn active right
1: now. So tactic-wise, Nate, what do you like to do this time of year? I mean, things change a little bit.
2: Yeah, what I noticed, actually, is, especially for the crappies, you had to kind of be on the move. Um, You'd get probably 5 to 10 minutes of activity per hole, and you didn't have to be big moves once you found them, but it was small moves just to keep... I suppose as they get pressured, they move a little bit. The sunfish seemed very aggressive, as did the bass. Um, crappies I did best with kind of a more motion and a little rattling spoon with the minnow head tipped with the minnow head. Uh, the the sunfish is they kind of like the the brighter colored jigs, and it seemed like wax worms, Euro Ivory was best. But they were even so aggressive that we got some on a little rattling spoon with the minnow head, which you know I don't. That doesn't happen too often for me, so it just seemed like the fish were aggressive in general.
1: It seems to me more and more anglers are actually using walleye tactics right now for panfish. Is that true?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's some of the general same stuff. So so much of a key is that is your electronics. and again, you're you're reading how the fish are reacting, whether it's your jigging cadence, you know, if you're too aggressive, you'll be able to see that how they react on the on your flasher. Um, but if you, as soon as you drop it down, there's a couple days like that, that you wouldn't even get it down and the fish would come racing up. And at that point you don't have to be too particular, but if you're marking fish and they won't go, especially with the panfish, sometimes you really got to play around with the colors and they can be very, very particular in that. So it's kind of a trial and error thing.
1: And as far as lakes go, you mentioned Gull. Um, I have try- <laughs> I have tried many times to chase crappies around on Gull Lake, and they just, the minute I hit the ice or the water, they just disappear. But um, I'm sure other anglers probably deal with that same thing. But as far as, you know, lakes this time of year, it's kind of that get out the map type of time, isn't it?
2: Yep, the the map and then your DNR surveys, but a lot of your your normals. Again, I'm kind of particular about some of the secrets, but your North Long, um, 371 Bay, there, Round Lake, a lot of your smaller lakes with the vegetation got the good panfish populations. They're all going to be at that same place. It's just you might have to do a little looking to find them. Um, right now, it's kind of seemed like during the day they're maybe off the weed line a little more, and then right at evening they come up to the weeds and. Um, we've had the best success kind of fishing right on top of those weeds. Or if you have a school of fish with some smaller ones mixed in, again, if you keep that jig on top of the the water column, those bigger fish seem to be more aggressive and come up and get it. So you're not dealing with the the small fish near as much. So that's been kind of key for us.
1: Colors matter at all, Nate?
2: Yeah. Yep. There. Well, again, I'll go back to some days um some days they're very very particular and that's where i have three or four different rods with different colors on and keep experimenting and you might even run through a negative on all those and have to put on other colors but for the crappies in particular pink has been working really well for me or also white with a pink body um so the panfish or the uh sunfish hasn't mattered a whole lot to me but again i'm kind of a novice i just go with my daughters to have fun and so we're not real serious. Uh, I know some of the guys that know Panfish have a lot of secrets that that are much more knowledgeable on that than I.
1: Uh, And one last thing, Nate, too. um, You're heavily involved with the Walleye Alliance and stuff. you got the banquet coming up, the tournament later on. Awesome info on that.
2: Sure. Uh, We've got everything available on our website now, which, again, is www.walleyealliance.com. And we got our spring banquet April 23rd. speaker speaker is James Linder. We're doing a walleye dinner. Um, I think that's going to be a really, really fun event. So if you want tickets or sponsorship, we've got all that information on our webpage as well as Facebook page. And then the spring tournament again is May 16th. And just this last week, I've actually fielded quite a few calls on that. Um, you can sign up online as well at our website or Facebook and both of those, um, functions, I dropped off some hard copies of registration forms up at s and Shop so you can always run up there and get a hard copy if you'd rather do that as well.
1: There you go. It's Nate Blazing with s and Guide Service. Nate, if people want more info on you, how can they get it?
2: Sure. You can give me a call at 651-592-3857 or send me an email at snwguide at gmail.com.
1: That's Nate Blazing with S&W Guide Service with our local report. Nate, as always, I appreciate the great info, and we'll talk to you soon, okay?
2: Thanks much, Brian. Enjoy some of that sunshine.
1: More of Brainerd Outdoors after this on B93.3. Whether it's for fun, sport, or hunting, if you love to shoot, you know it's important to go to a gun shop that has everything you need. That's Freedom Firearms in Brainerd. Freedom Firearms isn't a huge gun shop, which means Russ, the owner, attends to his customers. They carry rifles, shotguns, pistols, suppressors, distance precision rifles, plus ammo and accessories and gunsmithing. Plus they offer $25 transfer fees. Buy, sign, or trade at Freedom Firearms, two blocks east of the historic water tower between Little Caesars and O'Reilly. Welcome back to Brainerd Outdoors on B93.3 We head out to Mille Lacs, get the report out there from Steve Sapaniak with Predator Guide Service We haven't talked to Steve for a few weeks, he's been uh, sunning himself down on the beaches of Florida I'm sure that was fun down there
3: Oh, my God, Brian, it was a wonderful, wonderful time. Uh, my arthritis gets so bad in the wintertime, and I do love my ice fishing, but uh, I got a heck of a deal on a two-bedroom condo uh, with everything furnished uh, for one month. I couldn't pass it up. It was like the Godfather movie They made me an offer I couldn't refuse, and <laughs> it was worth it. I miss Minnesota deeply. I miss the fishing, but my body was happy, and I have, to, I have to, you know, appease the body once in a while.
1: Did you get any fishing in while you were down there?
3: I did. I did a lot of surf fishing. Uh, they didn't like me. All the fish that were in the surf. In fact, they didn't like none of us who were fishing from the surf. The water was too cold yet. And I did a couple of charters, one with my daughter and one with a good friend who's down there. And we caught plenty of fish, but nothing we could really keep that was in season. So, it was exciting. It was fun. Saw a lot of dolphins. I had a big uh, snapper on. Got bitten in half by a shark right at both sides. So that was exciting too. But all in all, it was uh, fishing was so so. And, uh, you know, it was just fun to be in the sun.
1: Yeah, I bet. Beats being in the uh, cold and gloomy weather that we had while you were gone, so I'm glad you brought some of that sun back with you.
3: Well, I'm trying my best, hey. i got to do something to help out Minnesota.
1: <laughs> Appreciate it. Uh, out there on Mille Lacs, Steve, now we're into basically, you know, the one thing I always say, Mille Lacs known for walleyes, known for muskie, trophy pike, but don't sleep on the crappies and the bluegills because they're going to get going now.
3: Oh, definitely. I was up the other day doing a little uh, pan fishing on the nearby lakes and everything and checking on Mille Lacs. Also, uh, the weed beds, anywhere you're going to find weeds, you're going to find the panfish. Here's case in point, Garrison, Garrison Bay, Vineland Bay, walk Bay, Cove Bay. The sunnies and the perch are incredible at times in Cove Bay. walk Bay, where I live, walk Bay, huge crappies, huge sunnies, big perch, Isle Bay. Basically, the whole circumference of the lake, wherever you're going to find weeds, you're going to find panfish. At this time of year, it just gets better and better as the ice starts to get a little bit thinner. The warmer water temperatures that is caused by the uh, sun... Brings in a lot of zooplankton, invertebrates, microorganisms into the weeds, and it's just the entire food chain. Uh, Fish early in the morning, Brian for the crappies and for the sunnies, and late in the evening. Uh, Perch basically all day long, but as soon as the sun starts to go down, they sort of shut off. But right now is prime time for your panfish,
1: And pretty simple fishing out there, too.
3: It is. You know, don't make it difficult. This isn't rocket science, uh, but I have learned a few things over the years also, you know, be smart. I use four-pound test, fluorocarbon. My four-pound test has a diameter of two-pound test. It has the break strength of six-pound test. And it is totally invisible in the water column, and the sensitivity is second to none. So that has helped us, you know, in uh, the long run. On uh, nice days where the water temp, or excuse me, where the air temperature has been consistent without cold fronts and it's been warm, I upgrade my size of my presentation. You know, I like to use maybe a one eighth, one 8 ounce uh, tungsten. I like the Wonder Bread pattern, and I've been using uh, Eurosparks 2, 3 of them on, or a waxworm. And watch that sonar, Brian, for the panfish. It's key. And right next to my hole, about 5, 6 feet away, I'll have a dead stick with a crappie minnow on for the crappie. So it's a win-win situation, and you're going to catch a lot of perch, too, on those crappie minnows this time of year as well.
1: Yeah, I've always said, and you agree with me because you're out there so much, uh, big fish for malax. My biggest walleye came off of Malax. My biggest pike came off of Malax, and my biggest crappie came off of Malax right there in Waukon On Bay. Where we you and I were fishing out there one morning. Yep. And uh, I mean that's that's the thing. I mean if you want big crappies, Malax has got them.
3: Oh, it definitely does. You know, uh, I hate to say this. Uh, one of the old gentlemen uh, was crappie fishing, and the size of the crappies. If I told you how many inches long, I know the public would not believe me. Let's just say they were they were over eighteen and unfortunately he walked into one of the local pubs and after uh, a number of people bought him enough drinks because he brought his pail in, he started talking about where he caught him and everything. And, you know, the word gets out and everything. Unfortunately, uh, people catch on. Now, let's not forget uh, five years ago, the young gentleman on uh, Facebook, or one of the fishing forums, talked about exactly where to go on walk-on bay, what to use. He gave away GPS coordinates for hmm. the big crappies, Brian. I watched our spot go from 30 to 50 guys for 30 years. I quit counting, gentlemen, at over 200 that very same weekend after he opened up his mouth during the middle of the week. Over 200 people walk on bay. I walked by one guy who pulled up a beautiful big crappie. He had to announce to everybody, here's crappie number number so-and-so. This is my second kid's limit. And the guy next to him goes, where's your children? And the guy goes, well, they're in the cities at home. And the other guy on the other side of him says, you blankety-blank, you're only allowed your limit. That man grabbed that five-gallon peel full of crappies and ran off the lake ice as fast as he could. You know, my case is, folks, this is a fragile resource. You don't have to keep your limit every time. You don't have to keep the biggest of the crappies, neither. Think of the future. Think of your children, your grandchildren. Release those big fish. If everybody starts doing it, we're going to have uh, fun for the rest of our lives and for the future. Take home those 8, 9, 10-inch crappies instead of the 12 to 15, 16-inchers. And, yes, there is are 17, 18, and 19-inch crappies, Brian and Mille Lake. You know that.
1: Absolutely. So don't sleep as well on the uh, smaller lakes around Mille Steve, because uh, those can produce, too.
3: Oh, my goodness, you know, Smith boarding right now, a uh, little whitefish right across from the west side there, eddies and everything, is a great crappie producer, some nice sunnies. Shakopee, I was out there the other day doing pretty good with some sunnies, nothing big, you know, but a lot of three to a pound, so you can't beat that neither.
1: There you go. And the other thing, too, right now, you mentioned the perch, uh, Steve. They're making a comeback on Mille Lac, so that's nice to see. You can also set up some tip-ups right now for Pike and go after some really big ones out there.
3: Oh, definitely. You know, uh, fish those weeds right now. Those big pike are moving back into the shallow weeds and the surrounding rock structure. Don't be afraid to fish the nearby rock reefs next to shore. Fish all the weeds. Again, I'm going to sound like a broken record, and everybody forgive me, but this is something you've got to keep in mind. Fish every point, pocket, inside turn of the weed beds. I mark them all on my GPS in the summertime, and I transfer them to my handheld GPS for winter use. You have great luck this time of year. Don't fish more than 18 inches off the bottom. One thing I've learned that has helped us a lot, Brian, over the years is uh, I use an attractor. I have never mentioned this before, you know, but I've written it in articles for Outdoor News, and I'll mention it on the radio. Chop another hole, drill another hole about eight feet from your hole you're using, your Sacramento Minnowim. And what I like to do is take like a spearing decoy or a spoon without a hook on it, a daredevil, and I will work that spirit deco- or that spoon in the second hole I drill up and down vigorously for about 30 seconds and then move to the other hole next to the other tip-up. What that does is it attracts any fish in the area. When that fish comes over, when that pike comes over, it sees that big sucker minnow or shiner minnow you have down there, and it's a win-win situation. So using a tractor, you're going to be pleasantly surprised how great it works.
1: What do you suppose the biggest mistake anglers make, Steve, when they're setting up their tip-ups out there?
3: Too heavy equipment. Fish have eyes, they got uh, eyes, they got a brain, even though their brain is the size of a pea, Brian, like I've said hundreds of times on the radio show, and and you've said it too, anything with a brain can be conditioned. You've got yourself on a heavy quick strike rig with 100-pound test, stainless steel leader our metal leader with hooks on, they see that. You're using that heavy, heavy black line, you know, 30 to 80 pound test. They see that. They see all of that, Brian. They get conditioned. Go thin wire material. Go thin wire hooks with a fluorocarbon quick strike rig leader. Go, uh, fluorocarbon leader for about four feet up to your black line on a swivel then you can go heavy learn to be stealthy if you're in a do or die situation and you're going to run in the woods for protection you're not going to be wearing blaze orange so everybody can see you you want to blend in like msg and meatloaf same thing when fishing (laughs)
1: msg and meatloaf wow i like that one boy you are pulling out all the stops this week steve (laughs) trying to catch up from being gone too long i was gonna say you must have been hanging on that one for a while (laughs) it has been yes (laughs) yeah there you go (laughs) steve saponiak predator guide service you can check him out at predatorguideservice.com i appreciate it buddy hopefully you and i can get out on the ice here yet this year and uh we look forward to talking to you soon
3: Oh, I, I hope we can do it, too. Uh, my pleasure, Brian. Thank you.
1: More of Brainerd Outdoors after this on B93.3. Welcome back to Branded Outdoors on B93.3. We love when listeners share their outdoor experiences, hunting stories with us all the time, and every now and then we come across one that we just go, Wow. And this is one of them. Mike McKee joins us. Mike has been hunting up around the Hackensack area for quite a while and had a pretty interesting outdoor experience while he was out scouting for deer. And Mike, I guess I'll just let you take it from there.
4: Well, we meet up there every year, a week or two before deer hunting, some friends of ours, and and, uh, we have a cabin up there. And we hunt in the foothills area, uh, kind of in the north end of that. And we go out and we get our stands ready to go and scout and whatever. So... Friday morning, I grabbed my my lab uh, bow and uh, we went out uh, out to my stand and uh, thought I'd do some scouting and check out things and and uh, like we always do. Well, I'm quite a ways away, about seven miles from our cabin, and it's pretty rough country, and I'm hunting down in the in a big cedar swamp. So I. Bo and I take off, and we start walking in the, in the woods, and we get to my stand, and we're checking things out, and, and it looks in good shape. So I, we just decided to go and, and, and walk through that swamp and just scout for, for deer sign. And uh, probably about an hour into it, uh, we're getting to, into the heavy part of the swamp, and all of a sudden I hear my dog, Bo, just start yelping. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, something, something's wrong. And uh, immediately I thought of a, of a porcupine or, or something. And I couldn't see him. There was kind of a, a blow down there. And so I just took off running because I knew he was in trouble. And I, and I come around this, this down tree, and I can see about 30 to 40 yards away. There's two timber wolves on my dog. And of course I just. I just couldn't believe my eyes I was expecting something totally different and I let out a big loud yell as I'm running uh, towards Bo and the wolves kind of set back and Bo got free and took off running right towards me and now I'm still moving towards him and the one wolf just kept following Bo, ran right after him and kind of tackled him about 15 yards from me and brought him right to the ground again And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. And uh, so I I yelled again, and, and the wolf got up, and Bo was able to get free, and he comes running right over to me. And that wolf, you know, is about 20 feet from me now. And he just continues to come right on in, and he just jumps right on Bo right at my feet. And these things are enormous. I I didn't realize the size of these things. It it's it, it made my dog look like this, this puppy laying there. And I was just in awe and the other wolf kinda of caught him. He's kinda of coming to the side, you know, he's not he's not coming in real fast. And uh so I all I could do was, was kick the wolf. And I, I kicked it right in the ribs and and it just it did nothing. It just held Bow down, and, of course, my dog is, is snapping at it. And uh, so I, I kicked it again, and that time it, it got off, and it just kind of walked over there and stood. It wasn't 10 feet from us. And just stood there, and I'm thinking, this you know, it, it, it's just unbelievable. I can't believe this is happening. He, it's, it's like he didn't even know I was there. He paid total disregard to me came right in, uh, hit my dog, knocked him down. And so I, I started to yell and yell and raised my hands, and the wolf turned. He didn't run. He just turned and walked away, probably went, you know, 15, 20 feet, stopped, turned around, and, and looked at us again. Now, I don't know. I'm not looking where this other wolf is, but this one is. Uh, I don't know if he was the the big one, the small one, or what. But he seemed huge. I, I don't know if he was a leader or what, but he just wouldn't go. And so I just kept yelling. I'd move forward and you know towards him a little bit. He would and yell, and he would walk away again. And we continued to do this. And then I noticed another wolf, and then another one, and then another one. There was five of them that I could see, and. Uh, so I just thought this this isn't good. you know they they want my dog. they don't care that I'm there, evidently and uh, so I just I just didn't know what to do. I just sat there and yelled I picked up sticks, and I beat them against the tree and and yelled and screamed, and they got out, I got them about forty yards from me, and they just stood there. They wouldn't go any further and i and I had no weapon with me um, that was in my four-wheeler. <laughs> Good place for that, I guess. And they just sat out there. Uh, so I just thought, well, that was kind of the direction that we had to go to get out of the swamp. So we ended up. I just got Bo by my side, and we just headed out, made a big loop through the swamp, just watching our, you know, our, our backside, and just seeing. I never saw him once I got out of range from him. I never saw him again. And we finally worked our way out of the woods and got back to the four-wheeler, and I just I put Bo in the back, and we just took off. And I got uh, down the trail about a mile, and I stopped and, and uh, checked the dog. Then there was no bite marks on him. There was no nothing. He was limping a little bit, and he was kind of tender on his back end, but, but uh, he, w- he was fine. And, uh, so it was just, uh, it was a pretty harrowing experience.
1: How long of a process from that when you first saw the Timberwolf, the very first one, to when you finally were able to kind of get out of there and, and realize you were safe, how long of a process was that, Mike?
4: You know, I don't think it was very long, Brian. You know, things just happened just boom, 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 boom. Because as soon as I heard Bo yelping, I took off running, you know, right away and, uh, like I say, as soon as I got around and saw him, you know, how long does it take, you know, to go 40 yards? You know, it doesn't take very long. Maybe 30, 40 seconds from the time I saw him till the time they chased him down, till the time I kicked him off a bow. Then after that, we probably, I probably sat there maybe for another minute yelling and jumping and maybe two minutes. It seemed like an eternity. <laughs> so, But it, it doesn't take very long. But, yeah, one of the amazing things that was that they never made a sound. You know, in my, in my mind, you know, we've all thought of encountering wolves because we have a lot of them down there. Uh, this isn't our first sightings. Uh, it's my first sightings of them. But, but uh, you just envision of them, you know, ripping and tearing and growling, and they never made a sound. This whole thing was silent. Even when I kicked him, he didn't growl. He didn't do nothing. Uh, the only one making any noise was my dog
1: there's two things out of this story that are fascinating to me number one like you just said how and we've heard this about wolves before they they are silent um and when you said you saw for the most part two, and then all of a sudden you turn around and there's five i mean it shows yeah. you how what time um, how they hunt in packs and work together and all of that sort of stuff and it's so stealthy that's the I don't want to use the word creepy, but, I mean, when you really think about it, I mean, it's the way they do that, it's it's amazing. The other thing, you said you were a ways back into the woods because the the one thing that really blew me away with this story is how they just didn't care that you were there. And normally, I mean, you see people when we actually had the hunting season for wolves, uh, most of those wolves are taken via trapping. Very few people could get close enough to a wolf to shoot it with a rifle. Now, we we heard some stories a couple of years ago. There was a, a campground attack. I forget where that was at. I want to say it was up by Emily, maybe Pine River area. And to come to find out when they were able to, to harvest that wolf, it, it had some sort of brain malfunction. I'm wondering, but these wolves don't seem to have that case, Mike, because you were pretty much deep back. And I wonder how close you were to maybe their den. Were they protecting something or were they basically on, on the prowl and they they were looking to, to eat
4: I think that's the case. I just think that they were looking to eat my dog. You know, he was so focused. I mean, he never hurt me. They never did anything to me, you know. and uh, But he was so focused on getting that dog that he literally came right in. Like I said, it paid no attention to me. Even when I kicked him off, he didn't run off. He didn't scamper. He just sat there and looked at me until I... Could get him to move, and then he turned and he, he walked. He he didn't scamper. He didn't run. It's just like uh, I don't. I don't think there's probably anything wrong with them other than they're just trying to get a meal. Scary to think that that I didn't scare him. Yeah, right. know, I would have thought that as soon as he even if he was so focused on Bo, after I got his attention, you'd think then they would have scattered, knowing what I was. But but they didn't. I don't know, but it's. it's I'm sure if I didn't have Bo along. I probably never would have seen them. I, I think it's totally a prey thing, and, and that's what they were after, and they weren't going to leave without it. And if the second wolf would have got involved uh, before I got that big one off, I'm sure they would have had my dog. I don't think there's anything, because the other five, I think they're really methodical. I, You know, reading a little bit about it after this happened, I've been on the Internet a lot, as you can imagine. No, I bet. And, and, and that's kind of where they do. They... They want to kill the animal. They don't want to get killed, and they don't want to get hurt. You know, so they they hunt in packs, and and Bo, of course, I mean he's a he's a, a good sized dog. He could lay some hurt on them. You know, he could rip them uh, their nose apart. So I think it's all about wearing down their their prey, wearing them down, and then you know surrounding them and just kind of moving in closer and closer, and then finally just
1: tearing them up. Yeah, I think that's probably like you just said. They were, they. They were just trying to wear him down, for starters, and that's where I think he got lucky in the fact that he didn't have any bite wounds or anything.
4: No, he didn't. Even at my when he was at my feet, Bo was kind of on his back at this point, and he just he just came running in and kind of with his front paws just po- bowled him over, just pushed him down. And, uh, of course, Bo's snapping at him, and he's the wolf was just kind of sitting there and trying to get his head down, and I don't know if he was going to go bite him in or not, but I, I kicked him, you know, so fast that, you know, and I kicked him again, and, and then he he got off but uh, so I I don't know I don't know what the the process would be but I'm sure it wouldn't take him too long
1: I would say the other thing out of your story that people sometimes forget and you were an eyewitness to it is the other size of these animals Um, I I've never been up close to a wolf before I've seen some pictures of people that have actually during our wolf season that we had and, and those were shocking to me how big some of those wolves were you get to see it firsthand live action I mean people forget these are large large animals
4: I, you know, and and you're right, that was the first thing, you know, things go through your mind, and when that wolf ran up to me, that's the first thing was, oh my gosh, oh my god, <laughs> this thing is gigantic. And, you know, we, we saw a lot of tracks in that area later, and uh, there was a couple of the tracks that were, were really, really big, and I'm sure that would was, was probably this one, I don't know if that was the, the main dog or what, but but he was, uh, you know, like I said, he was very tall. They're very long, and uh, they just—they're just big. They're just big animals, you, and up close, it's—it's—it's it's, it's scary.
1: Two more things, uh, Mike. I know you're real busy, and we'll—we'll we'll, we'll let you fly here. But um, number one, I would have assumed that you're probably going to be carrying a sidearm with you for the foreseeable <laughs> future when you go into the woods.
4: Oh yes, we went back out there the next day, and and we had a shotgun, and we had the pistol, and and two dogs, and and uh, not that we were looking for them because we weren't, but my son hunts back there also, and it's funny because last year, uh, right by his stand, and I heard them too. They howled all day. They had a kill uh, back by his deer stand. He could just see them and hear them splashing in the swamp, and and uh, so there's nothing new. They've been there uh you know a lot and they live in that cedar swamp but this was just getting a little bit too close for for me i don't need to do that again uh once i got back and out and onto my uh four-wheeler and we got out of there it kind of all sets in you know and i just was kind of quivery and and shaky and all your nerves start coming out then at the time you just kind of you're just trying to get protect your dog
1: Oh, absolutely
4: so, uh, but later it, it kind of set in, and yeah, it's uh, it wasn't fun.
1: Did you talk to the DNR about this at all? I, I don't think I did.
4: Yeah, I, I did. I called them up and talked to them a little bit about it, and, and you know, basically, and, you know, there isn't anything that they can do because they're federally protected and not under the state anymore. Uh, but I said, I just wanted to tell somebody this. I wanted to tell you this. And, you know, when you don't, to me, that animal should have been afraid of me. Mm-hmm. and And it wasn't. And I just think there's something wrong at that point. I think these things need to be controlled and need to be hunted, and I think they need to be a friend. If we're going to coexist, and I have nothing against wolves. I, I like the fact that they're there. I like to listen to them howl. But I, I'm just fearful that if, if they start you know, becoming nonchalant with humans, there, there, something could happen.
1: Well, thanks a bunch, Mike, for for telling your story. Um, and and I'm also glad that you know you you said, well, I just went back out there the next day because I think some people that might traumatize them to a fact that they may quit hunting. You know, so well, I'm, I'm I glad do they did have to happen.
4: go out there opening morning in the dark. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so we'll see how I do. <laughs> yeah, but w- once again, you'll be you'll be packing then, so you'll be okay. Yes, I will. Yeah, yeah I but will. Uh, what an interesting story. I'm glad your dog is okay too, because I, I like I said, I didn't know where this story was going, and I'm going, oh no you know but uh so that that's good to hear as well but fascinating story mike Uh, i appreciate you taking the time to to share it with us and uh, i'll say this good luck out in the woods
4: oh thanks brian i appreciate it
1: we'll have more branded outdoors after this on b93.3 Welcome back to Brainerd Outdoors on B93.3 and we're going to do something a little different on the show this week. Uh, I was lucky enough at a station event here a few weeks back to uh, run into Amy Chanette. She is an intern with the DNR Forestry Division here in Brainerd and we had a really nice conversation about uh, what she did and uh, basically what it takes to become an intern with the DNR and uh, first off Amy welcome to Brainerd Outdoors. Thank you. Um, So tell me a little bit about Forestry, you know, with the DNR. When somebody says, you know, I'm with forestry in the DNR, it's not just about studying trees.
5: Yeah. Um Forestry depending on the agency you work for, in a lot of places it's really about timber. Um in Minnesota, forestry is really unique because it brings in money for the state, um in a way that, you know, maybe managing rare wildflowers doesn't, as far as I know as an intern. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> So it's really all about timber, um, but the thing that that the DNR does and, you know, most most public agencies in forestry is harvest timber in a sustainable way. So you don't just go in and cut down all of the trees. You have a really deep awareness of what that site and that land is in terms of soil and um, what your vision for the site is after it's harvested. So how you cut those trees down depends on what you want to plant after um so there's a lot of planning that goes into it you know day to day you get to go in the woods and measure trees and count trees and do a lot of things with trees but there's a there's a lot of like studying and and planning that goes into it but at the end of the day it's pretty much all about timber
1: and tons of research i would imagine too
5: yeah um You know, I'm not sure. I don't know that much about what the DNR does for research. There are a lot of people working at the headquarters in St. Paul that are doing more forestry planning um, rather than field work. But definitely in academia, there's a lot of research because it's always, you know, if we harvest this way, does this species grow back better? Or if we bud cap for deer this way, do we have better luck? So. There's a lot of trial and error to figure out what works best. Amy, let's talk
1: a little bit about how you got into it, because you're not originally from this area. You moved out here from Oregon. Mm-hmm. And uh, how did you choose this path?
5: Um, well, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and I moved to Minnesota about 12 years ago to go to college. Um, I went to McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I was an English major. Um, I kind of thought I wanted to be a journalist or, you know, I don't know. Something,
4: <laughs> <Right>.
3: <laughs>
5: an English major primarily. Um, I was really good at reading and writing in high school. I struggled with math and science, so I just stuck with what came easier, which was reading and writing. Um, so after college, I, I had a kind of a series of entry-level jobs in nonprofit, um, in marketing, um, did library fundraising, so kind of a whole bunch of stuff, but just wasn't really happy and I wasn't really... Moving towards anything, and at the same time, my personal interests were shifting a lot. Um, I was outside a lot more. I started camping and hiking, which I had done when I was growing up, but not really as a teenager in my early twenties. Um, so I kind of just started seeing the world a little differently, I guess. Um, so around 2016, I, you know, I knew that I needed to do something else, but didn't know what. I didn't want to just go get another job, but I didn't feel ready to pick something and go back to school. And I was kind of thinking natural resources management. So I quit my job and worked on a vegetable farm for five months. Wow. I lived in a chicken coop. It it had been turned into a bedroom, (laughs) but it was once a chicken coop. Um, And I really just needed kind of a breather to figure it all out, but also just to test myself, you know, bugs, heat manual labor, do I actually like it? Because we probably all sit in our offices and wish that we were hiking Mm -hmm. some days. Um, So I needed to figure out, you know, was I just kind of sick of working in a lazy way or was I really, did I really need to make a change? Um, The farm was great. Uh, I loved being outside. I loved being dirty. It was awesome. So I did some community college classes after that to brush up on math and science. And then transferred to the University of Minnesota. So I'm doing a second bachelor's degree in forestry and natural resource management.
1: Wow. And it's something obviously you have a passion for.
5: Yeah. Um, You know, it was kind of happening before It was my work ethic was kind of going down because I was doing work that I didn't really believe in or I didn't think was important. I didn't want to be there. And now um, at school and in my internship this summer, I'm I wake up really excited to go to work and really happy to be there. And it's something I look forward to. So everyone tells me that that'll fade. But right now, I'm very, I'm very happy and excited. You about know, it.
1: and I don't think it, to be honest with you, I've, people told me the same thing about this job because I, I love what I do. And they're saying, wow. And it's like any other thing. I mean, you have good days and bad days, but there's a lot of people out there that, that don't love what they do. They have to go to work every day.
3: Yeah. And it's kind of nice
1: having, you know, you know, having that, that feeling when you get up in the morning that I get to go to work today. So that's kind of a neat thing and a very interesting path that you took there.
5: Yeah. And I, and I you know, part of it to a certain extent is I want to make the world a better place, which a lot of people do. And um, you could argue that cutting trees down is not making the world a better place. But it is sure. because we need we need wood. Yep. We need wood for a lot of things. We should be buying things made out of wood. Buy a wooden box instead of a plastic box, um, but we need to do it in a sustainable way. So, you know, I don't want to save the world. I don't think I'm going to be able to do that in a job, but it's nice to do work that that I believe in. Sure,
1: absolutely. One last thing: um, if somebody's listening to this right now, maybe it's uh, they're they're looking at a career change, or maybe they're just getting started on the career path. And how? what do they need to do to become an intern? And maybe it's not even in forestry. Maybe they want to get into fishing, game or something like that. Um, what, did it ta- what do you think it would take for them to get? What's the first thing that they should do to get on their, that path?
5: Well, the first thing, I mean, for me, I think it was really valuable to get a job working outdoors and just um, kind of test myself and make sure that I really wanted to do it because it's different you know, being outside or being in the woods, six, seven, eight hours. You're not on hiking trails. There's bugs. So, and it really helped me build confidence in myself going into a career change to have worked on a farm for five months. There were things that I knew that I'd be able to do once I got to forestry. Um, But most jobs in natural resources management need a four-year degree. There there are a lot of things that you can do with a two-year degree. There's like a lot of positions that are more like forestry technician, wildlife technician. Um, So there's a lot of community colleges in Minnesota that have really, really great natural resource programs for two-year degrees. Um, But a four-year degree helps. And um, I think the biggest thing, aside from education, is just experience. So, you know, internships, jobs. um, There's a lot of jobs that are... Maybe more like a park maintenance job, whether it's like a city park, regional system, or the DNR, um, that would be a really good way to just get some experience using the tools and looking at trees. And even if it's not a forestry job, you could have a nice entry in with being like a park grounds worker or something.
1: Sure. Well, it's been an interesting conversation, Amy, and, and I, I wish you the best of luck on on your path and. And what's next? I mean, basically, you, you were telling me you now are heading to Cloquet for some things going on up there for six weeks?
5: the end of my internship, I am going back to school. I have two years left in my program. Before that, I will be at the Cloquet Forestry Center, which is a research forest um, the University of Minnesota runs, um, doing a three-week session there. So it's kind of like forestry summer camp. We live in dorms. We have class six days a week. And we learn all the stuff that's trickier to learn in a classroom.
1: Amy Chanette. she is an intern with the DNR Forestry Division right here in Brainerd for the next couple of weeks and then off on your path. So, Amy, good luck to you. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us, and uh, hopefully we get to talk to you again sometime.
5: Yeah, thank you very much.
1: And that's going to wrap up this week's show. Don't forget, you can catch Brainerd Outdoors just after 7, Saturday mornings, Sunday evenings at 7, and Monday mornings at 5 right here on B93.3. You can also stream the show live if you're out of town or away from your radio. Just go to BrainerdOutdoorsRadio.com, click on the Listen Live tab, and don't forget wherever you download your podcast, we are podcastable, as I like to say, worldwide. And we thank Freedom Firearms for helping us out with our podcast. We'll see you next weekend for another edition of Brainerd Outdoors. I'm Brian Moon.
0: Brainerd Outdoors has been brought to you by The Power Lodge, SCR Northern, Thielen Meats, Tracker Boating Center, Weimar Outdoors Archery Pro Shop, SW Bait and Tackle, Oars and Mine Marine in Crosby, Northern Sales and Manufacturing, Your Ice Castle Dealer in Pine River, Ice Sports Custom Fish Houses, Burmal Shoe Store in Randall, and by Radco, Your Truck Accessory Pros. Join Brian Moon Saturday mornings at 7, Sunday evenings at 7, and Monday mornings at 5 right here on B93.3